Hi, this is James Joke, and most of the webcomics reviews and interviews. Today we're sitting down with David Dow, publisher of Dust Comics. So sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. Hello. Thank you for having me on today. Just on. Oh, sorry. No problem. Go for it. No, I'm just saying. Yeah, I'm just, um, as I was uh, telling you before we started, um, we were trying some new ventures here and we have a long history of doing graphic novels and comics and uh, some other um, books and whatnot but we're getting back into web comics which is where we kind of started from before we were, were dust comics and we're despite all the craziness going on we're going to try to do a kickstarter for one of our books not just to get it printed but to get money into artists hands who could really use it right now yeah there's a lot of people right now are hurting for money Oh, definitely. And um, if you look at like a lot of the shops, you know, the comic book shops, Diamond has shut down. So I know they've been trying to find ways of getting different um, comics to stores and all that. I know ooh, Marvel and DC haven't found a real physical way to do it. Um, I'm with some Facebook groups and we're trying to get content. I'm even talking with Kickstarter directly saying, well, what can we do? to make this more appealing to brick-and-mortar stores as well, instead of just, you know, funding a book and then getting artist money, can we also generate content that we can give to the stores that they can potentially, you know, sell safely through mail order to their customer base and, you know, help out more people? Having Diamond Down is really hurting, especially, like you pointed out, the big companies. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't help. The big problem, of course, you as a small company have is that well, basically you can't meet the minimum for minimum for Diamond. So yeah, yeah, no, that is Diamond's headaches are not. They're not headaches. You know, Diamond obviously has very particular rules for their system because it's not worth their time and effort to ship only say two or three books. So they got to protect themselves. But they do put interesting hurdles for a smaller publisher and. Now those are gone, but, you know, store still has to be able to sell products successfully. And if they buy a bunch, it's not going to move. They just wait as wasting money and they can't waste money as much as they could afford to in better time. So it, it's a good time and it's still a tricky time to get, you know, for independent comics. So we're having fun trying to figure that all out. Good news is you do have you still have access to digital publishing, so that is true. And even though some of the, part of the reason I think why DC stopped and some of the other ones is because one of the big printers in Canada, Transatlantic, no, Transcontinental, is shut down for safety's sake, and that makes sense. So they can't print. But luckily, at smaller folks, we do smaller print runs, so we can work with smaller print shops. Or it's just a guy or two who's not risking their health going into the shop and shipping stuff out because shipping's still going. So, you know, we do have things, you know, we, we have choices and alternatives that some of the bigger folks don't because, well, when you're bigger, you got more moving pieces and you got to worry about more things than you do. Yep. On the other hand, if you're smaller, you can basically do like you point out, like do a Kickstarter, give that huge amount of capital, use that to capital to publish all your books, and then send out the books and whatever tier reward you have to, you know, as needed. Yeah, and that become that was an interesting problem with uh, Kickstarter to begin with, with um, 
physical stores is a lot of physical stores felt that, well, if you already sold all your books to people who want it, what, how can we, you know, take it, you know, how does this help us? And so that's, and I pose that to the um, comic liaison for Kickstarters, like, well, how can we redo the narrative or how can we redo how the system is working instead of just being a direct seller to where we're producing and distributing? But how can we bring in comic book stores to not only further our audience, which is a benefit to us, but also give them more revenue stream and new revenue stream while, you know, money's so tight right now. And, of course, didn't help that a lot of brick-and-mortar places are considered non-essential. Yeah, that is true. But I've noticed a lot of our shops here, or at least where I'm at in Texas, is they can still um, – they can't open, but they can still ship things and whatnot. And some are doing delivery. Some are doing, you know, shipping through Post or FedEx or whatever. So they can still get product out. So there are still ways to bring money in. I think that's more viable than because I remember originally when it all started, everyone was like, buy gift cards and you can come in later. It's like that's that's good for short term, but you know you're going to need something more tangible in the long term. Right. All right. So real quick, what's the uh, book you're trying to get going with the Kickstarter currently? Um, it is called Dust versus Cheerleader Karate Squad. Um, karate School. Sorry, Dust versus Cheerleader Karate School. Um, it's a crossover between uh, two uh, two indie books. Uh, we're both local creators to us, local to us anyways. And we both, you know, we're a big fan of comic books and all that. And every comics, especially superhero comics, have those classic crossovers. So we're like, well, let's have some fun with it. And, you know, actually do a classic, you know, crossover where they meet, maybe fight a little bit, join up against a bigger foe and all that. So... We, even though our comics aren't very superheroes, they're more supernatural, urban fantasy sort of things. We still dug into our earlier roots of superhero comics and did a crossover together. There's, you know, the, the celebrate that. Yeah, that's definitely going to be interesting. I mean, you've seen a lot of independ- independents come together and do some interesting stuff. Uh, the dreaded uh, Friday, uh, Jason versus Ash versus Michael, or sorry, Freddy. Uh, combo for example oh yeah definitely and i've i've seen and so i know that's why it can work for when they did the uh, freddy versus jason which is just in my opinion a fun movie and i know with the uh, evil dead comics they've had ash crossover with a lot of different folks too so the crossover is a great vehicle not only to cross promote and bring in different audiences but it's a great storytelling tool i think as well, if you know, done right. Also, it, it feels like there's a definite, um, I know, a mood situation because it sounds like one of them is a real serious book and the other one not so much. Um, no, they're both, um, they're both serious in tone. Um, one maybe has a little bit of a lighter coating on it because it's dealing with high school age kids and all that, and mine are dealing with more adult age. But no, it's both about, you know, people having to deal with kind of dark, sinister things, you know, where the world seems normal, but there's kind of dark underbelly to it. And you got to kind of tackle that 
you know, alone because most people don't go into the, you don't want to deal with the shadows and whatnot. So we're, and that's another reason why we teamed up is because we, uh, thematically, we have a lot of similar themes and tone and all that. So we decided to, you know, try that. And we, there was enough room to where we thought it would fit together well. All right. So tell me a little bit about Dusk. Yeah, Dusk is um, obviously from the name is our flagship title from Dust Comics. It's about a young lady who um, innately has this um, mat, um, she just has a good aptitude for magic uh, powers. You know, like some people are good at math or uh, race car driving. She just had an innate ability to wield magic. And so she's kind of dragged into this um, supernatural world by this evil uh, vampire. And when she's finally saved by, um, and I always call him pragmatic, I don't call him heroic, because he doesn't do things out of a sense of uh, more human feelings of emotion and right and wrong. He's just more cold about it. And it's like some people are evil and they're kind of like sadistic and that's, to him it's a waste of effort or, you know, it's like there's no point in that. So he saves her out of just, you know, well, it's like there's no reason to be captive. You're free to go. And she's so kind of traumatized, she sees it as a positive interaction with somebody where, you know, someone saved her, where he's just being pragmatic. It's like, no, keeping chattel or slaves is just kind of productive. They're not going to work well with you. And it just comes out with, you know, bad results. But she sees it as, you know, like, oh, no, this is a good relationship. I want to stay here with you. And since, again, he's more pragmatic, it's like, well, you're an adult. You can make those choices. I will remind you it's a bad one, but you need to know know that. So it's kind of just messed up sort of uh, relationship, kind of a, a turn on the whole, you know, you know, if someone falls in love with a vampire sort of thing to where it's, it is unrequited love, but it's more messy because I, I feel the world is messy. So if you're going to tell stories, they need to be a little bit messier and complex. Okay, and how does Dusk uh, basically fit into that world, or does she? Um, into the crossover, or you mean into the, how does that? Her own particular world. Well, as she, um, she does fit in, because she does have the innate magical ability. And again, since he's pragmatic, he, he's like, well, we'll use that talent. But she kind of, you know, since she's so traumatized and all that, she kind of blunders around in this darkness and makes mistakes and she makes good choices. And it, it's a, it's a good way to magnify her problems and examine them to where, you know, normally it'd be just a simple drama about one woman with her, her problems and dealing with it. But with this, it's magnified, like I said, to where, you know, people die, people suffer, you know, there's magical curses and all that. So she's just kind of trying to find her way, but there's, you know, there's a cost to it all. All right, and the cheerleaders? Uh, yeah, uh, cheerleaders karate uh, school is done by VJ Lewis, who he wanted. He was kind of taking different things from like Supernatural and um, Pretty Cure, which is a magical girl show, and old school comic books. And so it's about, but with a darker tone. So it's about these young ladies who training in martial arts to fight against these demons that come into the world and all that. So there is kind of a the superhero um, 
magical girl element, but it's more of a darker bent. You know, it's more modern to where they're having to deal with not only their high school problems, but, you know, dealing with fighting actual demons and so forth. So it's a fun kind of uh, buffy balance, if you would, from that old show. I know I'm generalizing here. It sounds like basically you took Buffy, kept her in the cheerleading squad she was originally in, and brought in a couple of friends. Um, that's one way you could uh, look at it. There's, um, yeah, there's more of a, it, you could say that, like they took more focus on the actual slayers and made it more of a, a group of people than just the one sort of storytelling that the Buffy show had. And BJ's speak more onto that, but my interpretation is I can I can agree with that to where yeah they made it more of a a group and they did focus on those pieces and elements of the cheerleading squad and the slayers and all that and kind of carried it into its own path. But at the same time it sounds like you said it sounds like you actually had a little bit more fun with it in terms of making it more of a mature thing rather than just simply going say uh mean girls or instead of going a mean girls or Heathers type of situation. Yeah, definitely, definitely, because I know two of the two of the squad from uh, they fight, but you know they fight with they have skills, so it's a knockout, you know, it's a knockout drag out brawl. So it's not just like oh hair pulling and name calling. No, they are throwing actual kicks and punches, and there's blood being drawn. So yeah, there's a little bit more intensity to it. And just out of curiosity, what kind of method are you using to get these people together? Are they in the same universe? For this story, it's just since they are set in a more modern world, we just set it in the town we're both based out of, which is Denton, Texas. Cheerleader Karate School is set in Denton, and it's not hard to bring my character, Dusk, into that setting, too. So we just did it there, and they just kind of since they both deal with weird happenings, one happens where it brings in Eve, who's the lead in Dusk, comes into town to investigate it, and it kind of ties into what the, the girls are doing in the cheerleader karate squad, and they just, uh, school, and they just kind of have to solve it together, because they're the only ones that are kind of experts on that. And are you making any other concessions between the two between, I don't want to say two universes, basically they are. Um, but can you any concessions to have a little bit of fun with the two universes? Um, since it's a pretty small, self-contained story, so and I like it like that because it's a little bit more intimate. I don't want to give away anything, so I can't explain how it's intimate, but it is a story that plays more personally with the the young girls than it does uh, from cheerleader or karate school than it does from dusk. So it puts a little bit more focus on them. But since I was writing it, I was comfortable with doing that because I am in Dusk. I'm used to changing angles of focus. So sometimes Eve in Dusk is protagonist. Sometimes he's the antagonist. So I had no problems adjusting her to make her role a little bit supplemental to the cheerleader karate school girls to help for the sake of the story. So to a certain degree, she almost becomes a mentor to the girls? In a way, yeah, but still, you know, yeah, a mentor, but also kind of an older girl that, you know, kind of not, not disdainful of them, but, you know, or like pecking order or so where there is that whole clickish little sort of thing 
going on. So even though she's an adult, she, you know, they're all you know trying to find their place in the hierarchy there, and ultimately have to learn to work together. And without getting too much into spoilers, what kind of themes in that do you go, have fun with in the comic? Well, um, obviously I ramp up since um, since we're doing it in comic books because originally uh, Cheerleader Karate School was a it was going to be a web series because uh, BJ had um, he's done a couple of web series like he did an earlier one called Hit Girl or sorry Party Girl to where it was about a young lady who uh, fought crime in a mask, kind of a, a more modern take on the vigilante story. So he tried to do that with uh, cheerleaders, but there's just some things you can do in a comic that you can't, you know, with a, with a live action without a humongous budget. So we got to really play with the magic more. Um, we got to, we try to put in a little bit of a serious element where there's kind of a, relationship abuse going on, which is tied in directly to the main just uh, justification of what's happening in the, the town and what the girls have to address. And of course, I've got to ask, what, what kind of differences do, would there would be between a web series versus a printed comic book? Well, for one... Like well, first off, like I said, you can't do as much effects-wise. The effects alone, is what you can basically, you can't really do. Well, I'm not the film guy; I'm the uh, comic guy. So BJ would have been able to say it better. But my understanding is even with the uh, computers and all that, you can only do so much in the effects and practical uh, effects on the actual screen. And everyone's so used to such a high level of quality, it's hard to you know meet up to that standard. Where with an artist. They can, you know, with a good uh, artist team, you can meet the standards of comic quality a lot easier than you can, you know, doing a low-budget movie versus, you know, a big blockbuster. And also, you know, there's so much more scheduling involved because with live action, you're dealing with people, you're dealing with locations, you're dealing with a crew. So, you know, you're dealing with, you know, maybe 20, 30 people to where with a comic, maybe at best you're dealing with three or four. So there's just a lot more easier, not saying comics are easy by any means, but it's a fairly common trend that um, you know, a lot of people have screenplays or scripts turn them into comics because it's still a lot easier to produce something than that than it is the live action. There's a lot fewer cats to herd, basically. Exactly. So. Yeah, I need a clarification on that because you sort of keep in mind when we on this show when we say web series, we mean webcomic. Ah, okay, fair enough. Yes, yes, sorry. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Nonetheless, looking at the difference between the two is sort of interesting because you do see a lot of people are looking more at doing stuff for uh, YouTube, TikTok, that sort of thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's great, and it's great because there's just so many different uh, formats that you can do create the telling in so it's a great opportunity and all that and i would say the difference between and like my dusk we started we originally got into graphic novels because we couldn't do a weekly schedule or bi-weekly like you know web series do and we couldn't definitely do a monthly 32 page or 22 page schedule like comic books do so we thought it'd be faster and more efficient to do graphic novels with our time 
And that just magnified the various, you know, problems. There's nothing, there's no quick and easy way of making comics. You'll find each one has their own unique hurdles and um, they all require their own time sink, you know, really get it done right. And you pointed out that you're having to, uh, gonna love this one. Um, so I'm never gonna get the, I know I'm never gonna get the name of that one, of the, of the uh, karate school down, the cheerleader karate school down. I think I might have just gotten it right. But is mm -hmm. that more of a monthly or is it more a graphic novel? Um, he's looking at it more to make it more uh, a comic, it, as in, you know. I don't think it'd be monthly, but he's looking to do more single issues, per se. And again, because he's going for that more traditional feel, that more episodic feel, than he is doing a full, you know, 50-page, 100-page graphic novel storytelling. So I think he's looking at Sorry, I'm just saying, I think he's looking at it from a storytelling aspect in the formatting, which drives how it's, you know, made into, you know, 22 pages versus a big graphic novel. So basically, we basically take the movie route and he takes the TV show route when it comes down to the comics version. Yeah, that's one way you can look at it, definitely. Yeah, it's not one of the weirder analogies we've seen on this show. <laughs> yeah, whatever gets you to conceptualize the thought and work, so I have no problem with that. Well, no, just pointing out that when you start looking at, say, a movie franchise and that sort of thing, even though there can be a certain degree of serial continuity there, at the same time, you're basically wrapping up the themes, having a little bit more fun with it, exploring things in a more concise way than you would if you were doing it same in the te uh, television series. Exactly, exactly. And that's why every medium has its own uh, strength and weaknesses. Me and my fiance were talking about that because we were watching the uh, Lemony Snicket movie, and they were talking about how the TV show was much better because she was explaining it's like, no, no, there's like three or four books in that one movie, and I was like, whoa, that's a lot to condense, and so it made more sense that in a episodic version of it, you could, you couldn't, uh, even though you have less time per episode, you still have a lot more creative real estate focus on each story so it's interesting how each you know one has its strengths and weaknesses on how you can tell your story and not all of them can be tricky you know you can't just go oh this story can be made as a game as a movie as a tv show it's like no you gotta you gotta change things in order to make it fit right i mean they had these things like not only do they have to combine um books but they also had to condense out characters as well as a few other, combined other events, that sort of thing. So, oh, no. they were able to expand on those same events, and they were able oh. to introduce individual characters as well as have a lot more fun with the organizations that are part of the series. Yeah, that's what that's what she was explaining to me. Is you get more a lot of the mystery and the clues and all that. So it's like, oh, okay. Which I didn't see anything wrong with the movie while I was watching it, but I didn't know all this other backstory stuff that was missing out. In that regard, it's going to be real interesting to uh, read the when they actually combine into the two universes. Or, and basically keep going with that because even though I know they're pretty much they are in the same shared universe at the same time, there's a lot of different themes that aren't quite carried over plus a lot of different ways you do handle the two different books 
that aren't quite the same. So it's enough to make it two different universes. Does that make any sense? Oh, no, definitely, definitely. I remember when I was a kid, when I would go to Star Trek conventions, shows you my age, they would always tr- delineate between three different things. They would treat the movies, shows, and the books. Because this is before, obviously, a lot of the other Star Trek media was around. They treated them as three different, especially the books, as three different kind of environments. Or, you know, or, or, as you said, universes. Which, you know, Star Wars has always had that problem. You had regular Star Wars stuff, and then you had the kind of the expanded universe, which when they sold it, you know, they kind of got rid of a lot of that, which is, I understand for house cleaning or housekeeping, that's a smart thing to do. But, you know, people have invested emotion and time and with those characters that you basically have said is not valid. Of course, in the realm of the imagination, what is real and what's not is kind of interesting, but, you know, people take it very seriously because it's, you know, readers and viewers, people who consume this entertainment, they make it their own. They bring it to life with their emotion and their imaginations. Oh, yeah, and you helped it with the expanded universe. You had characters that in the movie canon were really touched upon were actually really well expanded within the books themselves so it got sort of really weird really quick i know i know and i remember that experiencing that the first time with star wars because i remember um in uh, the dark horse they really had great little burst of boba fett expansions to where they didn't do a whole long backstory they just added more adventures and hinted at it but they knew how to play up with his his air of mystique, because he didn't, his air of mystery, didn't know much about him. And then when Lucas went back and goes, oh no, we're going to explain it all to where, you know, there's nothing you don't know about Boba Fett. And you're like, kind of takes away from the character. But at the same time, you're going to have that level of expansion at some point, just because a lot of people are fascinated by the Boba Fett character. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's one of the reasons I got into writing is, I want to make characters, but I want to hint at things. I want to let people to fill in the blanks. But I don't want ever to just spill it all out. And just Because to me, that takes off the fun. You know, when you're reading a good mystery or something where there's secrets and then you find them out, you're like, I enjoyed the journey getting here. But now that I know it, I didn't meet expectations or now it's over. So I can never just wonder about what's going on anymore. So that's just my thought philosophy. Sometimes it's better to not tell everything. With what you're doing, what's also going to sound sort of fun is that you're going to basically, like I said, not only are you going to be comparing the universes to some degree, but you're also going to be looking at where they actually share a lot of the same uh, crossover as well. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so that's going to be interesting. Yeah, and and it's not that if, if you can if, if you know the concepts, you can do it pretty easy because I did a crossover before this where. I crossed over with another friend's comment called uh, um, Robicide Killer Ninja Workout, where it is totally tongue-in-cheek. It's about my friend's love for the 80s and all those 80s movies. And just a second, sorry. I got asked a question over here. But it's saying, yeah, I did a crossover with my friend's book called Robicide the Extreme Ninja Workout where he takes his love of the 80s, everything from the golden child to 
um, all those cheesy uh, kung fu movies and all the other stuff. And I knew I could put my character into that story and make it a little bit more tongue-in-cheek and light, and you just don't worry about the details too much because on the robot side, you don't worry about the details too much because it's meant to be a parody and you know goofy, so you don't worry about, well, how does this all work? Like, it's don't work, don't sweat it too much. It's meant to be fun. So are you going to continue, are you going to keep this up as a tradition between the two comics, or is this just pretty much a one-shot? Right. It's a one-shot. I know BJ is trying to get the main book all finished and out and all that, so he's going to be putting his creativity into that and his resources. But I may reach out to other creators and try to do other crossovers. I find it fun on multiple levels. I don't see no reason why not to try to, you know. And like I said, it's something I grew up with. I'm used to, you know, Superman meeting Batman for the first time or, you know, stuff like that. So it's all like, you know, it, it's, it brings me a joy in so many different levels. And I'm going to keep trying to do it with different uh, creations and whatnot. Yeah, it definitely were a lot of interesting crossovers. <laughs> mm-hmm. And even nowadays, when we start having a little bit of fun with the crossovers, we're starting to see a lot of weird stuff like Batman and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember, I can't remember some of the early crossovers back in the day. It was easy to do. Just creators or the people who owned it were one or two guys. Like with Marvel, you have to go through legal and editorial and all this other stuff. Or So Marvel and DC haven't done a crossover in eons. As I imagine, the logistics would be a headache. But with us, you know, indie creators are all like, hey, hey, Bob, you want to cross over a character? Sure, why not? Yeah, do even doing something as simple as Spider-Man and Superman sort of got weird. Mm-hmm. Because I remember, uh, what was it, um, what was it, Mike McNola and John Byrne, they did a, uh, they did a crossover with Hellboy and uh, Nexbit. But, and they carried over into both of the comics, and they even made uh, little jokes about why is the art so, why is everything so dark and moody when they were in more Magnola's art style versus Burns' more classic comic book style, you know? And it wasn't a big deal for them. They're like, "Hey, you want to do the crossovers?" Like, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> Sorry, it's just when you start looking at crossovers, you tend to start seeing a lot of weirdness. Oh, yeah, yeah. We don't talk about Amalgam Comics, for example. But, so basically there was no real, there was no real issues like with, you know, as far as mood and all that, it was just something you just simply did. Yeah. And we did, they, they, he let me write it, and he came back and, uh, I mean, I wrote it, he checked off to make sure what I did fit his characters, and then I let him do a most of the dialogue for his characters and all that, because he knows their voice better. And kind of like dialogue is a more intimate form of characterization, I would argue, than just, you know, plot points. So I had no problems with him controlling their voices because he knows it better than I do. But overall, it was fairly simple as a matter of trust. And we just handed off back and forth, so it was pretty easy to, you know, get it all done. Yeah, especially dialogue in comics is also sort of interesting just because comics are so a, they take the standard show 
don't tell to an entirely new level. Mm-hmm. And it's just like with books, though. Sometimes there's dialogue. That if you spoke it out loud, it would make no sense. You would sound ridiculous. But yet, on the page, in that rhythm, or what have you, it makes perfect sense, and it just fits the story so well. What kind of, what kind of, ah, how much fun did you have when it came to mastering the different dialogue patterns of the different characters? That's what, uh, for me, dialogue is one of my first hurdles I really had to work on, and I always have to work on it. And that's one of the reasons I've stayed away from big cast books and all of that, actually, is I guess that's kind of a cheat. So I don't have to manage all these different voices. Luckily, with Dusk, I know the lead character so well. I can go into their voices pretty easily, and it's the, the new characters I bring in or, you know, supporting characters that are only in for one story. i got to keep track of how they sound, and i got to make them sound different. Because I know, like, when I first write, started writing comics, my friends noticed, like, David, they all talk like you do. Like, well, yeah, because innately I go by my own speech patterns, and you got to keep an eye for that. And, you know, there's some easy tricks where people like to do accents. And the trick is, though, is you got to think of how, what they would say in any circumstances, even mundane ones. You know, basically have them living in your head and let them kind of speak out through their dialogue. Yeah, it's been said art uh, writers have to definitely develop a certain level of uh, multiple personality disorder. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's just the one little bit of trivia I always love about characterization and dialogue is they say Wolverine was born because they were challenging Lin Wynn with being able to write any dialect. They're like, okay, can you do Canadian? And so he wrote Wolverine so he could have a character that smoked in, you know, a Canadian dialect, because that's not one that's over the top enough to where you can really make it stand out on the page. So it requires a little bit more work than, say, a southern accent or a British one to where you have a lot of familiar keywords and all that that would make it like, oh, that, that person's talking like a British person on the comic book. Yeah, nothing else a different way that the southerners and the British handle their key for example, would definitely be a definite key. Mm-hmm. And then actually knowing that, that kind of drives me nuts sometimes because on a slight segue in animation and anime, when they bring it over, sometimes they'll have characters in Japan that speaks in a Sokken dialect, which is noticeably different than a regular Japanese dialect. And the closest um, analogy they can figure out is a southern accent. So whenever they have a character in anime that has an Osaka dialect, they just make it with a southern, they just dub it with a southern draw, because that's just the quickest and easiest relatable thing. And I'm, it drives me nuts, because, you know, trying to, one, to get into it as authentically and trying to, as a writer, trying to make it as right as possible, that just seems like a cop-out, but that's just a pet peeve. I get a little weird about those sort of things. Oh, no, you... Definitely, I definitely see a lot of real fun arguments when it comes to sub versus dub type situation. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I I grew up on uh, subs and all that, so I'm I'm diehard sub. I don't see me changing anytime soon. But in a realistic conversation, I understand the uh, plus and minuses of both. 
But if it you know comes down to me watching something, it's going to have subtitles. Right. Yeah, I'm uh, hyperkinetic, so I do horrible with the subtitles. See, there's different reasons for everything. Like my poor, um, my eldest stepson, he loves anime, and I have all this anime he can watch, but he has he has some dyslexia issues, so he can't watch the subtitles because that's just too much work going fast, and it takes you know some of the fun out of it. So I'm like, oh, I, I understand and I appreciate it, but. There's a lot of stuff I have that you can't enjoy because of that. Especially when you get to some of the more uh, cultural dependent anime where they do all the stuff in the background pointing out the sign, what the signs mean and cultural notes, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Some of them uh, love that because you get to learn more, but that's a lot to absorb. You're rewinding, having to read it all. It's just like, oh, shoot, I can't, I can't go through that fast enough. So... Yeah, dialogue is definitely one of the biggest pains a lot of writers have to deal with. Mm-hmm. So, the obvious two tips I would usually have with it is, like you point out, taking an acting class at some point. That's a good one I haven't heard of in a while. Well, with the acting, obviously, the cool thing is that you tend to learn how to do different dialects as well as how to think differently. And when you start dealing with dialogue, you have to be able to think in somebody else's different way of thinking because that's where all their accent and all their word use comes from hmm, that's very good i may steal that one from you and like you pointed out earlier definitely so you have to also keep up with some sort of mental some sort of uh well personality disorder <laughs> yeah and with me with uh like you said especially with something i've been doing for a little while yeah, I have pl- I have characters coming at me all the time saying, "No, I wouldn't do that," and this is what I would do to do that particular situation. So, mm-hmm. let's just say I've had to learn meditation. <laughs> <laughs> to calm the voices. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, so you know, I guess the obligatory is: what kind of stuff are you doing with the Kickstarter tiers? Are you just doing the, you know, just doing your autograph books? That's for- yeah, um, I'm trying a few different fun things with local creators because, again, you know, it's all, it's all about I'm trying to make it about being supportive as well as just getting my own content out. So I have one with a publisher, uh, publisher just south of me. He's going to offer where he will do a kaiju haiku for you, where basically you pick a city and a monster and he'll do a haiku about that monster destroying that city for you. And it'll be, uh, he'll give it to you, and he'll even uh, give you a digital copy of the book once he's done with a bunch of other kaiju haikus. Another one, we're doing a crossover with uh, Totally Rad Comics. They're in the same area we are, and we're doing a crossover cover. So we're just making even double sillies where we're taking a crossover book, and we're making a crossover cover between our two crossovers with his characters. So it's just a triple crossover, or a crossover, or... Or another word I can't think of that would be funny. Oh, it could be actually intense. Yeah. So what do you think? Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it's funny you bring that up, because I've had some people point out that they're all like, you don't seem to have a lot of the merchandising tiers and all that, and beyond some prints and stickers and different covers. But I've always been more about the content, so I'm not really interested in, like, giving out, you know, 
paper fans or, you know, cool wristbands or stuff like that. I want you to get the comics and the stories and some of the cool art. The rest of it, I just, not my focus as much. It's just sort of always interesting to see what people are doing on the various tiers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, mine's more about autographs, different covers, maybe some prints, some stickers and all that. So, all right, so yes, the obligatory is any final words real quick? Uh, no, no, just, um, well, besides go to drunkduck.com and check out all the great webcomics, but also check out the Legend of Black Sarah, me and the artist uh, Jerry Gonzalez were redoing the series, making a webcomic this time, so that should be fun. And also on the, uh, that'll be starting Monday, uh, April 6th, and then uh, April 13th, next uh, Monday after that, we will be launching the Kickstarter. So just go to Kickstarter and look for David Daub or Dusk versus Cheerleader Karate School and uh, support us if you can. It'd be much appreciated and you'll be helping some people out. Actually, just realized something. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you're able to work a little bit better with the local area comic book companies. I'm sorry, what was that? A little bit better with the local comic book companies. I mean, obviously not right now, but in general. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, that's the great thing about where I'm at in the Dallas-Fort Worth area is we have such a huge area of different uh, resources to pull from. Okay. I mean, how hard is it to actually work with an actual uh, comic book company or comic book shop? Um, depending upon the shop, it can be pretty easy. A lot of them are pretty flexible in what they'll do. They'll either buy comics outright at a, at a discount or they'll do consignment. Or, you know, or they'll, you know, take a few donations. You're like, well, here, try this out and see how it works. A lot of them have been, been pretty good, though, and they'll just outright go, okay, I'll buy... Ten copies of this, and we'll see how those go. Have you ever done a uh, lunch party? Um, yeah, yeah, I've done a few. I did one at a defunct chain now, but we had a chain down here called Hastings, which was kind of like a book slash video game slash video store, and I did some uh, launches there and all that. And I've done some with uh, Barnes and Noble as well, uh, and at comic book stores. They all work in varying degrees depending upon, you know, how much work you put into it and if you, you know, target it right to the, the way the different stores work. Okay. All right. So, basically, definitely check out the, web, the sorry, the duckwebcomic.com. Have to make sure, make sure I get that URL right. Yeah, yeah. And I'll send that to you. And because uh, otherwise, a certain Michael Ocean will track me down. Yes, me and uh, Michael go way back. So yeah, we we were both on Drunk Duck before he took it over. So, I just have to point out that yeah, I definitely uh, loved Drunk Duck back in the day. Mhm. But however, I do have to make a point that they did sort of make a branding choice recently. So. Yeah. I think he's done better with it in the long run. I mean, I love the guys who started it, but they obviously lost steam or whatever. You know, life is busy, and running a website like that is intense. So I'm glad, you know, Michael was there to pick it up 
and carry it on and turn it into what he did. Oh, yes, definitely. And I loved his, um, his, God, I'm blanking on his, because I know he's doing Bottomless Waitress right now, but I prefer his, uh, his sci-fi story much better. It's, it's fun stuff. And you guys will be launching your um, Kickstarter on Saturday? Uh, no, it'll be, our Kickstarter will be April, uh, did I say, which date? 13th, which is a Monday. I thought it was, okay, yeah. I know why. <laughs> I'm having coronal issues today. Leave me alone. <laughs> so, all right, well, that's definitely going to be interesting. And thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I had a good talk with you. This episode of Webcomics Reviews and Interviews is brought to you by Podfaves.com. You love podcasts, but it's hard finding that next bingeable show. Podfaves has taken out the guesswork by easily identifying the best podcasts out there, so you can spend less time searching and more time listening. That's P-O-D-F-A-V-S dot com. And that's our show. For those interested in supporting the show, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash two sparrows, T-W-O. It features minicasts, next episode, and unedited interviews, and I'm working on transcripts of the various shows. We also have an Alexis app offering two-minute minicasts offering writing and business tips, as well as affirmations to keep you writing. We also have curated playlists on YouTube, with all the shows broken down to different playlists based on topic. It also includes a good part of available minicasts, as well as the Alexis briefs. So please support our Patreon page, download the Alexis app, and subscribe to the YouTube channel, and please talk to us on Facebook. Thank you, and have a great day.